Let's talk some poetry. How about that, huh? Poetry. You guys big poem fans? You like poetry? Not really, probably, right? Um, I, I thought this was an opportunity for me, me to actually read a line from my dissertation. So I want to read you something that I wrote, I don't know when, I forget. And that is this. This is my, quoting Josh Montague here, be, quote, be careful not to over-explain poetic imagery in an expository sermon. So I'm going to completely ignore this thing. And I'm going to over-explain poetry to you this morning, okay? Um, a number of years ago, we actually did a little class online on Hebrew poetry and the Psalms. And I remember with the first class, we're on Zoom, I think it was right in the middle of COVID, lockdown stuff, and um, I asked, what do you guys think of when you think of poetry? And one person, whose name I will not disclose to protect his or her anonymity, said something like this, why can't they just say what they mean? And some of you probably agree with that. Like, I read these poems, and I'm like, just say what you mean for crying. What's with the flowery language? And I think that is a fair question. It's a fair question. Poetry, by its nature, plays with language in a way that is meant to be mulled over. It's meant to be chewed on, to be reflected upon, to be memorized or meditated on slowly and repeatedly. You can read a novel quickly. Well, some of you might not be able to, but you could just plow through it. And some of you do when you get to those you know, tense thrillers and you want to find out who done it. You just go to the end and try to read that thing quickly and that enhances your experience in some way. But you can't really read a good poem quickly. They weren't meant to be read quickly. Poetry helps us slow down, helps us ponder and appreciate words and phrases and images. Poets play with and they use words and images in ways that are careful and creative, and thoughtful, and I think delightful. So let me read you a little bit of one of my favorite poems. This is not from Scripture. We'll, we'll get to that eventually here. This is from Lewis Carroll's poem, Jabberwocky. "'Twas brillig, and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wabe. All mimsy were the borogoves, and the momraths outgrabe." Beware the jabberwock, my son, the jaws that bite, the claws that catch. Beware the jubjub bird and shun the frumious bandersnatch. I mean, that's just great. Like, that's just beautiful wordsmithing right there, isn't it? I mean, it's just, I don't know what half the words in there is, but that, that conveyed something. It did something. I felt that poem, and you guys probably felt it away as well. The, the way poems use language stirs our emotions. They're meant to connect with us emotionally. Poems are meant to be felt, not just analyzed scientifically. Poet Billy Collins, who, if you don't read Billy Collins and you don't read poetry, he's a good start. Um, just fantastic. And you can find so many of his poems online or buy his books, just gorgeous poems. 
uh, Collins, I think, well, like, re reflecting on teaching a class on poetry, wrote a poem called Introduction to Poetry, which is not a poetic title necessarily. But listen to the poem. I ask them to take a poem and hold it up to the light like a color slide or press an ear against its hive. I say, drop a mouse into a poem and watch him probe his way out or walk inside the poem's room and feel the walls for a light switch. I want them to water ski across the surface of a poem, waving at the author's name on the shore. But all they want to do is tie the poem to a chair with a rope and torture a confession out of it. They begin beating it with a hose to find out what it really means. It's kind of what preachers do to poetry often. <laughs> we beat it with a hose to find out its meaning. And that's not really what poems were meant for. They're not meant to be beaten with a hose. Let me give you the first few lines of a few famous poems, and I want you to just to reflect and think, how do you feel, how do you emotionally feel when you hear just a couple lines from a few poems? Here's one. I'm not going to put this on the screen. I just want you to hear this. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Of course, that's Bill Shakespeare, sonnet number 18. What's your emotional reaction to that? Just give me a word. Anything? Nothing. Flat. <laughs> Sweet. Sweet. Good. Any others? Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. Lovely might be another one. You feel kind of warm almost. It's just a lovely expression and a wonderful use of words. Here's another one. This will be different, okay? Because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. Emily Dickinson. What's your emotional reaction to that poem? Anybody? Heavy. Heavy. Good. Yeah, definitely. Anything else? Haunting. Haunting. I like that. Maybe sadness? Surprise, even? Let's do a couple more of these. These are fun. But, oh, heart, 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 oh, the bleeding drops of red, where on the deck my captain lies, fallen, cold, and dead. Walt Whitman. Speaking of Abraham Lincoln, I believe. What's your emotional reaction to that one? How does that make you feel? Anybody? Nothing. Sad. Sorrow. Loss, maybe. Ache. One more. One more. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. How's that one make you feel? Sometimes you had to read that one in school. So some of you are like, I hate that. I, it fills me with rage right now. But uh, if, you, if you did, we're able to experience that without uh, baggage. Then uh, what was your reaction to that one? Maybe, maybe awe, kind of taken aback, fear potentially, or even as you're told by Ozymandias to despair. Well, about a third of your Bible is poetry. Do you know that? God speaks in poems. Thankfully, not exclusively, 
Um, but he does communicate through poetry. Of course, the book of Psalms is the great example of that, but Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, the book of Job is narrative poetry, and much of the prophetic literature, like Isaiah, are poetry. They're poems. Poems can also be found embedded in Old Testament stories as a uh, a worship leader sings a poem to the people or sings in response to what God has done, a poem. Uh, They're also embedded within the New Testament Gospels. There's poetry in there. Jesus even taught in poetry from time to time. You remember the Beatitudes? Blessed, blessed, blessed. is repetitious poetry that's found in most Hebrew poetry. Even Paul, even Paul will at times wax poetic. Paul, in Romans eleven thirty three 33, says this after he contemplates the doctrine of the glory of God in salvation. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. That's poetry. So we're beginning a series on the Psalms of David. And so let me take out my hose and start beating the psalms a bit so we can understand a few key aspects of these biblical poems. Billy Collins will not be happy with me for the next few minutes. Let me just say a few things about psalms if you'll allow me to. Psalms were meant to be read aloud in the context of corporate worship. Okay? They were meant to be read aloud in the context of corporate worship. They were meant to be heard. They were meant to be heard. We did that this morning. We sang a few portions of some psalms to each other, and I appreciate Darren and Jerry and Aubrey leading us in that. We sang psalms to each other like they were meant to be. They were not meant to be quietly read by yourself near a roaring fire, Uh, with a warm cup of coffee during a snowstorm and Beethoven playing in the background and a pair of warm, fuzzy slippers on your feet. That's kind of how I envision poetry reading often taking place. That's not what psalms are for. I mean, you can do that. That's probably a good thing for you to do that from time to time. But the the way the psalms were designed and given to us is for us to read and hear them aloud. Second point. Psalms were meant to be savored, to be felt, and understood. So not just like, oh, I feel warm and fuzzy because of that. Like, I do understand something. I learned something through this. But there also is a deep emotional connection that should happen with poems and psalms. Poems play with and exploit the intricacies of words, of sounds, of images. Go back to Lewis Carroll for just a second here because I like it so much. The vorpal blade went snicker-snack. He chortled in his joy. I mean, how do you not like connect with that emotionally? I just, I'm happy just saying it, I think. I just want to say that. I'm going to say that a lot now to my kids. They don't know why, but I'm just going to say it because it's just good and it's fun. Let's give one from the Psalms. Here's Psalm 3.3, Okay. Listen to this. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. That's, that's, That's good. That's poetry right there. It's beautiful and it's emotionally stirring isn't it? It takes you on this journey of trepidation at the foes, but then confidence in God and who he is. 
amazing. Poems do that if you read them rightly. Third thing I'll say, the Psalms were meant to call us to action. Okay, they're not just meant so you like feel something. Oh, I feel good. I like saying that poem. No, unlike Lewis Carroll's silly little poem there, they're meant to call us to action. The Psalms, as Tim Keller says, teach us to do what the psalmists do, to commit ourselves to God through pledges and promises, to depend on God through petition and expression of acceptance, to seek comfort in God through lament and complaint, to find mercy from God through confession and repentance, to gain new wisdom and perspective from God through meditation, remembrance, and reflection." read that and I'm like, man, these, these ancient poems that we have in the center of our Bibles provide a lot for us, don't they? I mean, there's 150 of them, and they're filled with all sorts of emotional states that cause us to do something, to pray, to pray at the very least. Lament psalms have sorrow over sin and suffering. They plead with God for action and justice and rescue. Thanksgiving psalms give thanks to God for what he has done, what he has created, what he has built, how he has redeemed people. Praise hymns, praise God for who he is, his glory and holiness, his steadfast love, as we sang about earlier. The psalms call us to action, and that action is to pray, to pray the psalms with each other. They're given to God's people so we can commune with God. If you say, I don't really know how to pray, two things. One, read the Lord's Prayer because Jesus teaches you to pray, and pray that, of course, but start praying the Psalms. Make these your expression of prayer to God. It, it works. It's amazing. Like this, this connects with us Thousands of years after David and Asaph and Moses and others wrote these things, we still feel this way. We have these concerns, and God has given us language to speak to him in his word when we don't know what to say. That's awesome. That's awesome. I hope you like the Psalms, partly because we're going to be in it for a couple months. You have no choice. Uh, what am I at? Point number four. Psalms were meant to be sung. Songs were meant to be sung. Uh, I'm not going to take this in too weird of a direction here, but have you ever tried to read song lyrics without singing the song? It's kind of awkward, and it feels a little hollow, doesn't it? Let me, let me give you an example. I'm going to read part of a, a, a song here. We're no strangers to love. You know the rules, and so do I, do I. A full commitment's what I'm thinking of. You wouldn't get this from any other guy. I just want to tell you how I'm feeling. Got to make you understand. Let's, let's just read this corporately together, the last part here, okay? Are you guys ready? Let's read it together. Never going to give you up. Never going to let you down. Never going to run around and desert you. Never going to make you cry. Never going to say goodbye. Never going to tell a lie and hurt you. I, I mean, that was horrible, wasn't it? Like that's, there's something missing in that. Maybe it's, it's a little Rick Astley's dance that's missing. A little rhythm needs something like that. But there was something missing in that. The Psalms were meant to be sung. Gordon Wenham says this, Psalms are a performative act. You perform something when you read a psalm aloud or sing a song aloud. And that performance alters one's relationship with God in a way listening does not. 
The Psalms give you and us as a church a language to speak to God. And when we speak these Psalms to God, God does something in us. He brings us to himself. They're meant to be sung, to be performed. Now, of course, the, the trick is we don't have the, the melody and a chord chart or anything for these psalms, but we do sing them often, and I love that. Most first century Jewish people, including Paul, the disciples, and Jesus, would have had many, if not all, of the psalms memorized. They would have been walking on the roads in Galilee singing the psalms. They would have been sitting at the dinner table singing the psalms. Paul would have sung those with churches in the first century and taught Gentile Christians the Hebrew psalms. In fact, he tells the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 5, he says, Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart. Psalms were meant to be sung to one another. We're not going to get too weird on this. I've already gone there a little bit, but, um, but psalms were meant to be sung by the church, to be spoken aloud at the very least. So let's try another little experience. We're going we're to examine Psalm 1 and 2, but I want to read them aloud together, okay? Um, I want us to do this together. It's some of the inflection and stuff like that. Whenever you do a corporate reading and you lose some of that and you kind of get into this monotone thing. So, you know, it's okay to be a little expressive like that. I'm going to lead this with some expression, and we're just going to read these two psalms together. Psalms 1 and 2. I think we're going to have it up on the screen there. Yep, good. Ready? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen. 
We just kind of performed the psalms there, or we addressed one another in psalm. According to Wenham, that alters one's relationship with God in a way that listening does not. Something about saying poetry actually connects us to the emotion and the meaning of that poem. So now that we're finally in the text of this morning's sermon, let's think about these two poems. Bible scholars describe Psalms 1 and 2 as doorways to the entire Psalms. They're the introductory Psalms to the entire Psalter, the 150 Psalms. The themes introduced in these two poems that we just read set the stage for the other 148 Psalms. You'll see these themes repeated over and over throughout various Psalms. Now, while these don't explicitly say that they're Psalms of David, the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 13 seems to attribute Psalms to to David, and the Bible scholars almost universally agree that Psalms 1 and 2 are inextricably linked as Psalms of David. So we're on pretty safe ground assuming that these are Psalms of David. And just to give you guys a heads up, you're going to get pretty familiar with David this year and beyond as we preach many of his psalms in this series. And this fall, we'll work through 1 Samuel where his story, the context of these psalms is told. So let's look at Psalm 1 for just a second. Here's the gist of Psalm number 1. The righteous are blessed while the wicked are doomed. That's what the psalm is all about. If you beat it with a hose, that's what comes out right there. It is good and joyful and fruitful to walk according to God's way and to love his word. It's law. And the psalmist uses this word blessed, which if you ever want to just dive in deep to biblical studies, just try to figure out what the definition of blessed is. One possibility, or one, I think, probability is what uh, Jim Hamilton says. He says, blessed means a whole life flourishing, a whole life flourishing. It's connected to this Hebrew word shalom, where there's peaceful fruitfulness. And you even see that described in the psalm with the tree by the stream of water. Yes, there's happiness here, as some translations put it, but it's more than that. There's fruitfulness and stability and peacefulness in that word. And so to make that point, the poet uses a few images. This is what poems do. They use images. And the first image that you... well. One of the first images is that the righteous people are like a strong, healthy tree. Strong, healthy tree. When we were in uh, Petra or near Petra, we walked through some Roman ruins and there's this old, uh, was it a pistachio tree or something like that? Pistachio tree, um, I think. And uh, it, 450 years old tree, there's a picture of it there. And uh, it's um, among all these ruins, everything's flattened, but there's this giant beautiful, powerful, strong, seemingly permanent tree that has not been moved. It's fruitful. It's stable. Somehow in that desert environment, it looks even well-nourished. We would call it a blessed tree. By contrast, though, while the the righteous are like a strong, healthy tree, the wicked are like chaff. Chaff. That, That the husk of wheat when you throw it in the air and the wind takes away the inedible stuff so you have the stuff you can eat and turn into flour and delicious bread. The wicked, though, are like the chaff that just goes away and it's it's fleeting, it's worthless and weak, it's doomed. 
I have this willow tree in my backyard that I hate. And yesterday morning, there was uh, kind of like a brief little wind gust going on. You guys probably all had branches. This willow tree, I, I don't know how it still has branches on it, but it is this weak, worthless tree, unlike that fruitful, stable pistachio tree. And at, man, I mean, like, that wind came through and it looked like, it looked like we lived in a, I don't know, like, in the forest because of all the, just, you can even hardly see the grass. It's just unbelievable. That picture doesn't do it justice. Not a lot of us are ancient Hebrews, but if you were, when you heard these images of trees, you'd think of a host of connections when the psalmist uses this image of a tree. Right out of the gate, Genesis 2, the tree of life in the Garden of Eden provides, provides for God's people. Revelation 22, the back end of the Bible, the tree of life is now in the new Jerusalem, providing for the nations. Trees provide things. They provide shade, fruit sometimes. Um, in my case, with the willow tree, a lot of firewood. Um, as Christians, though, we should be thinking of another tree that stood at Calvary. And as Jesus died on that tree, he provides for his people. You could do a, I could talk for a long time about trees in the Bible. There's a lot of stuff going on with trees. So this image of a tree in Psalm number one triggers all those connections. We could spend hours on this. Ultimately, though, what the psalmist is saying is those who, are, who, those who righteously align with God and his ways rather than the rebellious ways of sinners are like trees that are stable and nourishing and provide. God wants to bless his people and use them to be a blessing. Now, if you grew up in fundamentalist Sunday school classes like I did, you usually heard this psalm taught this way, the following way. The title might be something like, How to Earn Your Righteousness. Point number one, don't walk with the wicked. You see that in verse one? This blessed man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Point number two, don't stand with sinful people. So now we're not just walking. You're like there. You're hanging out with them. Get away from those sinners if you want to be righteous. Point number three, don't sit in the seat of scoffers. Uh, now you're like, like you're with them. You're part of the gang now, and you're just mocking God and his ways. So don't do that. Alternatively, uh, read your Bible a lot because you should be delighting in the law of the Lord. So read your Bible a lot and meditate on it. Um, like, like all the time, meditate on the Bible, whatever that means. Just, but you got to do it. And so that's what I got out of some of my Sunday school classes. And then we would sing Big House by Audio Adrenaline. Um, <laughs> this isn't all wrong here, okay? There is some truth to that idea. Clearly, the righteous one in this psalm does not participate in sinful activities. The righteous one delights in God's word, and the wicked will fall, so there is a need to be righteous. What's often missed in this psalm in presentations is the concept at the beginning of verse 2. But his what? Delight. Delight. That's a beautiful word. Just circle that one or highlight it or do whatever you need to do to draw your attention to that in your Bible whenever you read Psalm 1. It's about delight. There's not a lot of delight in the moralistic message of how to earn your righteousness. But the feel of the psalm should stir us to long for this delightful, righteous way. It's good. It's delightful. And the alternative is pretty gloomy. 
the way of the wicked will perish. So, life with God is good, the psalmist says, and it leads to deep and lasting joy and happiness. The psalmist Asaph, in my favorite psalm, Psalm 73, which is very similar to Psalm 1 thematically, says this at the conclusion of his psalm, but for me, it is good to be near God. I love that verse there. There are a few problems that we may feel, though, now. Problem number one, we will never attain this kind of righteousness. Uh-oh. Uh, later in the psalm, Psalm 14, psalms will say this, There is none who does good. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Uh, ooh, we're in trouble here, right? Like, start to put that concept together. Psalm 1, way of the wicked will perish, blesses the man, all that stuff. No one is righteous. It's what you call a conundrum, right? Christopher Ash says that only one man has ever been able to speak Psalm 1, fully believe it to be true, and live it out. And that person is uh, not you, right? <laughs> This problem is serious, right? We will never attain the kind of righteousness as presented delightfully in Psalm 1. We long for that. That looks really good. That tree image, like, that's beautiful. But we won't, we can't. We can't do that. So here's problem number two. The way of the wicked, which, according to Psalm 14, is all, the way of the wicked will perish. So let's review, Okay. It is good and peaceful and fruitful and joyous to delight in the Lord, to enjoy his word, to follow him rather than the way of sin and rebellion. No one does that. All stand guilty of judgment. Uh, you kind of long, is there anyone who can be that righteous and that powerful and loving and obey God's law at that level? There's this problematic question that arises from a reading of Psalm 1 if you think it through, and it's, you think if it's so good to delight in and follow God, what do we do when we fall so incredibly short? And that may lead us to another question, and that's the opening question of Psalm 2. It leads right into Psalm 2. That's why people put these psalms together as like two acts of a play almost. Psalm 2, verse 1, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Why do so many rebel at this delightful way of God? Essentially, these, this, the question from Psalm 1 is the same that you're maybe asking with Psalm 2 if you read that one. If it's so good to be with God, why doesn't everybody do it? Why aren't we doing it? There's rebellion in Psalm 1, and it's described as these wicked people sitting together scoffing at God's ways. There's rebellion in Psalm 2 as, as powerful kings and rulers conspire against God and his anointed king. And once again, that act of rebellion should be familiar to us if we've read our Bibles and meditated on them day and night because they're filled with rebels. Genesis 3, when we eat of it, we will be like God. Genesis 6, verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then the flood. Genesis 11, at a place called Babel, 
let us make a name for ourselves. And then Psalm 14, as we read, there is none who does good. So why don't we all just follow God fully and delightfully and be blessed? Psalm 1, why don't we just do that? That sounds really good. But the rulers of this world and every human ever says God God constrains us. His ways aren't good and delightful. They're bondage, verse 3. He puts us in chains, it seems. Away with God, away with his ways. We're going to make a name for ourselves. Like sheep, we wander away from the good shepherd. Remember the king Nebuchadnezzar? Can't help but think of him here. Daniel chapter 4, verse 30. He's sitting on his palace rooftop, surveying the grandeur of Babylon, his kingdom, and he says, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And then just a few verses later, quote, Nebuchadnezzar was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feather. Don't read into that too much. And his nails were like bird claws. His nails were like bird claws. That's worthy of laughing at. Nebuchadnezzar has gone from glorious to laughable. It's a tragedy, but it's a humorous tragedy. The one who sits in heaven laughs at that king. You think that's your might. It's not the only time something like this happens in the pages of Scripture. Acts chapter 12, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. I mean... It's funny, isn't it? (laughs) I mean, it's gross, but it's funny. Revelation 18, the angel cries out, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. What was glorious is now gone. The kings of the earth make their plans for grandeur and power, but the Lord laughs. I do love that God laughs. You ever, been, you ever been so mismatched in a game? We really are going to go long. Are you guys okay with that for a few more minutes? I only got like two more pages here. Um, you ever been so mismatched in a game or a contest that it's almost comical to even try? Um, I, I get the chance to travel to the Philippines often, and um, the Filipinos love basketball. Um, so there's, there's basketball courts all over in the Philippines. Um, and uh, Philippines... Filipinos are not very tall people, so it's kind of nice for me in crowded Manila. I can kind of just look around and see everything, even though there's millions of people packed in around me. I'm like, oh, there's that, there's that. Everybody else, is, they can't see, but that's just kind of the way it is. So they want to play basketball when we're done with, 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 a, uh, with a, a course or class or something like that, and so we play some basketball. So imagine a Filipino trying to play, uh, trying to post me up in the paint. Right? Like, it's just like, are you serious? Like, it's, that's a laughable situation. Or imagine me trying to play full court um, against Filipinos, which is what they always want to do because, you know, I'm not that much of a runner. It's absurd to imagine that. Of course, they're going to destroy me. Dale Davis says this, thinking of this psalm What suicidal nincompoops to be possessed of such a livid rage toward the God who rules? Suicidal nincompoops. 
And once again, God has a better plan. So here's the the cold, hard facts. Verse 6, the Lord establishes his king. Verse 7, the Lord's king is his son. Referring back to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and the promises that God made to David and his descendants. I will be to you a father and you shall be my son. And then later, when Jesus is baptized, God, the Father from heaven, says, You are my beloved Son. Verses 8 and 9, this Son King rules over other kings and kingdoms. The King of Kings. Referring back to Genesis 49, where it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah and his descendants, including David, including Jesus. And looking forward to Revelation 21, when the king is on the throne and the nations bring their tribute to this king. Verses 10 through 12 then, those who kiss the Son pay homage to the Son, who show their allegiance to the Son, escape the Lord's wrath. And finally, the last line of the psalm, even more than escaping wrath, those who kiss the Son are truly blessed. Which brings us back to 1-1. Blessed is the man. Davis also says this, so you live in a world that hates you. But you lift your eyes and you see a throne that consoles. The blessed one takes refuge in the Lord's Son. Or we might say, along with the poet Asaph, it is good to be near God. We fall so short of the beautiful way of Psalm 1, but we have a king, God's Son, who rules over all, who delighted and fully obeyed the Father and his Father's word. The king, the son of Psalm 2, fulfills the requirements of blessing in Psalm 1, and by our incorporation through faith into him, we are blessed as we take refuge in him. The true blessed man, James Hamilton says, the true blessed man who meditates day and night on the Torah of the law will be the king the Lord has installed on Zion, his holy hill. Psalm 1 is talking about Jesus, if you haven't put the pieces together yet. God, who became man to delight in fully obeying the law, living without sin or rebellion, dying on a tree so there could be life, and being raised up to rule. And now... Now, all who bend the knee and kiss the Son will rule with him and never perish. And so the psalmist says, I think David says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice, rejoice, delight with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all take refuge in him. Let me read Psalm 1 and 2 one more time. Just listen. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the ways of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. 
Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven, in the heavens, laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Father, we hear Psalm 1, and our desires are stirred. We want that kind of fruitful, stable life. But we can't follow the path. We have gone astray. We rebel against you. And yet, in your mercy, you walked that path for us. And you gift us your righteousness through Jesus' death and resurrection. And now, help us. Help us to take refuge in him, to find ourselves in him, to bend our knee to Jesus and kiss him. Help us to find blessing in Jesus Christ. 